Hi, and welcome to Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from BaseballProspectus.com. It is episode 124, and I'm here with Ben Lindbergh. I'm actually here in Long Beach, and Ben Lindbergh is in New York. Mm -hmm. He is here with me on the internet. Someday we'll do a show in the same place at the same time, and we'll just stare at each other across our microphones while we talk. Yeah, no, I doubt doubt we will ever do a show. I mean... (laughs) I don't think yeah, that's that will actually ever happen. Oh, maybe something will bring you to New York again sometime this season. Yeah. Or both of us to Paris. Or both of us to Long At Beach. At the same time. It, something will bring me to Long Beach. Uh, it's email Wednesday. We have uh, too many emails. Yes. We have great emails. Our it's inbox becoming... overfloweth. Yeah, it's uh, you guys have uh, stepped up the game, but you're going to have to step it up even more if you want to beat out the brutal competition uh, the brutal competition mainly being the last four that we got. <laughs> That's not true. We read all your emails and select the most interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, well, we yeah, we do read all the emails, and they're all interesting. And in fact, um, one of these days we'll, we'll stop doing the email Wednesday, and I'll just take all the ones we didn't answer, and those will be all of my article ideas for the next eight or nine months because mm-hmm. they're, they're, uh, they're too good. In fact, most of them are... are so good that I don't want to talk yes. um, unscripted about them for four minutes. I want to actually research and write about them and put uh, tables together. I want mm-hmm. tables with mm-hmm. these questions. Yes, we we like to do off-the-cuff answers to these things, and some of them require much more than off Some require GIFs. Yeah. Some of these require GIFs to answer properly. Database requests and exactly. sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, okay. So Fancy fonts. Yeah. Um, I'll start with two questions that are sort of related. Uh, the first is from Matt Senkowitz. I'm just going to say last names. I think I've listened to a lot of podcasts. It seems to be podcast convention to say last names if last names are provided. I don't know. If anyone, that seems reasonable. If anyone I guess doesn't I... want their last name mentioned, don't include it or say you don't want it mentioned, I guess. A lot of people don't realize that their last name is included, though. Like, it, if your email address is like uh, Acorn seventy five, and you don't think your name is in there, but then it shows up in my inbox as being from Matt Sankowitz. Matt Sankowitz. Sankowitz. See, well, th- he's a he's safe because <laughs> I can't actually pronounce his last name. Yeah. Well, hopefully none of you are are on the run from the law or anything, and and using assumed identities, and someone will will hear this and ask us to trace your email. Uh, Matt asks, does the notion of tin step, there is no such thing as a pitching prospect, have anything to do with pitching prospects, or does it simply point to the unpredictability of pitchers? In other words, are pitching prospects more unreliable relative to big league pitchers than hitting prospects are relative to big league hitters? Sounds convoluted, but I think that this is a coherent question. Maybe it is. Mm. Uh, and then the sort of related question from Eric Hartman in Brooklyn He asks, how would personnel evaluations be different if pitcher's injury risk was equal to that of hitters? Would Zach Greinke have gotten more than six years? Would Tinstap ever have been popularized? Would I even know who Dr. James Andrews is? Mm. Uh, So these are kind of questions that require research, but I selected them because you kind of did some of that research recently, sort of, for an article. Not any research that would actually apply to these questions, though. 
uh, I mean, you compared the, well, I guess you didn't quite compare hitting prospects to pitching prospects. You I just compared pitching prospects pit- to pitching prospects. Yeah, I compared pitching prospects to previous pitching prospects. Yes, and what did you find? Uh, that there's some there's there seems to be some movement toward uh, pitching prospects um, uh, panning out more. Uh, that they're flopping somewhat less frequently. That they're uh, pitching more innings um, and they're doing it at a higher level now than they were uh, when the notion was popularized in the um, in the 1990s. And I don't remember exactly how specifically. Uh, uh, I got with that, but uh, there does seem to be evidence that either Baseball America is doing a better job of identifying pitching prospects, uh, or I would say, you know, more likely uh, a combination of um, uh, probably of usage patterns and um, and medical advancements uh, probably is, seems to help uh, young pitchers get through that dangerous period of their lives. And so they're just more likely to be uh, alive in their mid to late 20s, which is sort of the, the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, would you care to speculate about Matt's question? I guess I would. I would. Which one was Matt's? Matt's was the first one. Yeah, our 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 pitching prospects. Any? I think. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a, a yes or no question. I mean, I think that that what it is is a spectrum. Um, and I mean, you could, you could actually go further. You could just say that, uh, that there's no such thing as pitching prospect is, is actually just, it falls under the umbrella of you can't predict baseball. I mean, every, everything about baseball is, is sort of unfathomably unpredictable. Um, especially when you're talking about, uh, individual performances, individual players. And so, uh, so I mean, everything is unpredictable. I mean, the, the Orioles beat, um, the Red Sox this year in the AL East or whoever the good team is you want to say. So you could say, you you know, there's no such thing as a team or whatever. Mm-hmm. Snappy thing. Um, and so it's just a spectrum, though, where I think that um, you get the, the further, um, you know, the further you're trying to project out which is what you're doing for prospects, uh, the more margin, uh, the more, the more, uh, you know, the, the higher the error bars get and, um, the less, uh, information you have about the player's history, uh, the same thing. And when you're talking about pitching prospects, whose arms are, um, you don't have, you don't really have a lot of information about their health characteristics. You often haven't, um, you know, they've, They've got such varying histories. Um, they've got sort of young and immature tendons. And so there's all sorts of reasons that they're, I think, that uh, make that age particularly risky and that position particularly risky. Um, but, I mean, it's certainly the case that every player is incredibly unpredictable. Um, I mean, Adam Dunn seems to be the most predictable thing that you could conjure up. He was a a player around 30 or 31 who had been just obscenely consistent, uh, who had uh, essentially one foolproof tool, or maybe two if you want to count patience as that. And yet he went from being a um, you know a 40 home run guy to being the worst hitter in baseball. So you know you just can't predict anything. Mm-hmm. But to tie it into Eric's question, I would suspect that if pitchers were injured at a similar rate to hitters that we would probably not have this saying 
right? I mean, I would. There's no. There's no such thing as a hitting prospect. Uh, do you think that that's just attributable to the fact that pitching prospects and pitchers in general get injured so much more often, which adds another layer of unpredictability? Or do you think that there is something else about them that makes them less predictable? Like, uh, I don't know, maybe their their repertoires develop late or they lose their stuff that they have or, or they gain stuff in some cases. I would I would guess that if pitchers didn't get hurt so often, we wouldn't have this saying and that that probably accounts for most of the the greater variability we see with with pitching prospects as opposed to hitting prospects. Yeah, probably. I mean, I think that that you're talking about such different trajectories for skill development between the two. I mean, when you're with pitchers, you basically have more velocity and more kind of life on your pitches when you're young than you ever do. And it becomes basically... Um, a war of attrition where you're trying to develop new skills to cancel out the declining stuff that you have. And so um, you're really, I mean, when you look, I think in a lot of ways, when you look at pitchers who are successful in their, uh, you know, in their late 20s or in their 30s, a lot of times they're almost unrecognizable from the guys who were scouted and drafted and developed in their uh, late teens or their early 20s. Um, And I mean, like, well, I mean, I, just for an example, if Blake Bevan ever turns into something like really good, uh, the idea that, I mean, it's almost, there's no straight line that you can really draw or that you would ever think to draw between Blake Bevan, Blake Bevan, the prospect who got drafted, and Blake Bevan, the guy who might someday be successful. And so um, I think there is maybe a, um, there is a reinvention to successful pitchers that, I'm not sure you quite have with hitters. I mean, there's there's certainly uh, you're predicting a lot of development for hitters as well. Nobody's actually good when they're drafted, and so you're you're betting on who's going to develop physically and who's going to uh, respond to seeing a lot of pitches and a lot of uh, pitchers. Um, and I mean, there's certainly a um, it's it's a little bit of wizardry doing that as well. Um, but I don't know. I, I could see the case. Or why pitchers, even without the injuries, um, just because of the physical deterioration that they have. I don't know if you're counting that as an injury, but just because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, and I guess, I guess as for the rest of Eric's question, I would say that, yes, Zach Greinke would have gotten more than six years uh, if he were not a pitcher, if you could somehow convert the essence of Zach Greinke, the pitcher, into a position player, or just find a, a position player of a comparable age and comparable production, that he probably would have gotten more than six years, I would think. Uh, if if Prince Fielder can get nine years, then I would think a position player equivalent of Zach Greinke could also get more than six years. I guess Fielder was maybe a, a year younger, but... Uh, or maybe even more than a year younger. But Greinke just turned 29 recently, and he was the best pitcher available. And I would expect that he would have gotten a longer pitcher or a longer contract if not for the concerns about injuries that you have with pitchers. I mean, it depends on again what you're calling an injury. Um, uh, there's actually, I mean, if you if you take, I mean, in a lot of ways, right. I mean, I don't know if it's an injury if if 
just the wear and tear of of throwing so many pitches leads to less elasticity in your tendons or something and you don't throw the ball quite as hard and it's it's not as if there is something broken necessarily it, it's just things not functioning as well as they once did um so i don't know i it's not really an injury technically but it, it is a, a physical uh not even a defect i guess but just something that physically is is not as good as it once was and that is almost inevitable with a pitcher of a certain age. Yeah. Um, I Generally, I think that pitchers who don't get hurt, uh, I, I think probably age better. I, this is just speculation, but probably age better than hitters that don't get hurt um, because a lot of the skills that you need to be a successful pitcher um, are, um, you know, aren't really age-related. They're things that, um, could even get better with with time. I mean, you're basically fighting the inevitable loss of your fastball, and um, a lot of pitchers are able to adjust to that, develop new pitches, uh, get better command. Um, whereas with uh, hitters, you know, the the um, decline in speed, the decline in defensive uh, range is almost uh, impossible to avoid, and so uh, the the sort of predictable decline of hitters. Um, or I should say the decline of hitters is probably more predictable than uh, um, the decline of pitchers. It's just that the decline of pitchers tends to be more um, extreme and traumatic, and you're liable to get stuck with nothing. I do think that most... The, I think that uh, Eric's question um, about what would be different if pitchers' injury risk was equal to hitters, I think actually we've been hearing for years that... Um, you know, injuries and health are like the next frontier of baseball knowledge. And if you ever actually imagine a world where pitcher injuries drop substantially, like like noticeably, like by half or something like that, it would be massive. Because then I think the main factor that keeps uh, the pitcher-hitter balance kind of going or benefits hitters is that pitchers just get hurt so much that you're filling so many innings with with guys who have you know no no business really being in the majors and if you just take those hundreds and hundreds of innings that are lost from really good pitchers and give them back to the really good pitchers i mean you would i, I mean you would just have a huge effect on the run scoring environment in the league and it wouldn't surprise me if um if there ever were those breakthroughs if there would actually have to be um like substantial changes to the rules of baseball to even out that offensive environment again mm-hmm. And Eric's final question, would I even know who Dr. James Andrews is? Uh, I guess probably not. There doesn't seem to be all, – all of the celebrity sports doctors or the celebrity baseball doctors seem to be guys who treat pitcher-specific injuries like the the Dr. Andrews and the Dr. Jobes uh, because I guess it's kind of hard to identify an equivalent injury for a position player that – only position players get and that is related to their position playing in the way that an arm injury or a shoulder injury or an elbow injury is specifically tied to the things that a pitcher does and I guess something you need a specialist for. So there are certain doctors that you tend to hear about fairly often who treat uh, non-pitcher specific injuries, but I guess no one who has attained the same level of prominence. 
Uh, if you Google James Andrews and RG3 right now, you get 369,000 results. I saw him on my television during a football game recently, and I read many articles about what he said and what he allowed RG3 to do. Uh, so I think that you you quite likely would know him through the football context, mm. and it's probably uh, probably the next celebrity doctor is going to be uh, like some head trauma doctor for the NFL or something like that. So uh, yeah, I think that you you might know James Andrews right now. What was a football game doing on your TV? I watched the playoffs. Oh, okay. Uh, can I ask you another question? Do you have a dog? Uh, no, but Does I live someone in- who lives near you have a dog. There's a dog near. Okay. Well, making a guest appearance is that person's dog. Uh, next question from Paul with a Greek last name that I'm not sure I'm pronouncing right, but may possibly be Hembikitis. Hembikitis. Uh, Paul says, Sam and Ben. I find BABIP to be a grossly overused statistical tool in comparing players to each other. My logic comes from the obvious fact that typically the hitters with the highest BABIP are the best hitters. That's obviously the case because the best hitters hit the ball harder and would therefore be more likely to get hits when they hit the ball. And anybody who played baseball at almost any level would readily acknowledge that. Therefore, BABIP should be exclusively used to compare players to themselves from year to year. I'm just so tired of hearing that Mike Trout was lucky this year, BABIP of 383, based on that stat, when anyone who watched him play would have noted he hits lasers all over the field and can also fly. Am I off base here with my logic? Looking forward to hearing your response. Uh, So no, I don't think he's off base, and certainly if we're talking about hitter BABIP specifically, then I think it makes sense to compare players to themselves, uh, since it's, it's not the same as... With pitchers, where everyone seems to cluster around uh, a certain amount, and you always expect someone who's above or below that to regress toward it, certainly some hitters have the ability to have high BABIPs year after year, or low BABIPs year after year. And Trout, specifically, is is a guy who you would absolutely expect to have a high BABIP year after year, in that he hits the ball very hard, and runs very fast, and can beat out infield hits. But I think it's still probably legitimate to say he might have been a bit lucky. I don't know that anyone's projecting a, a total... I mean, no one's expecting Mike Trapp to, to crater based on this Babbitt from last year. But the fact that it was 383, that's still extremely high. I think in... I just looked before in 2011, no one had a Babbitt that high. It's, uh, it's a level at which usually maybe just a handful of players or just a few players reach every year. And even someone like Austin Jackson, who's been kind of the the king of high BABIPs lately and has topped that 383 mark, I think a couple times, has a career 370 mark. So 383 is just extremely, extremely high. And I don't know that anyone has actually sustained a BABIP that high year after year. So I would say that while he's as likely as anyone to have that high of Abib next year, uh, he probably will not have that high of Abib next year. Um, well, okay, so first off, um, the premise here is, quote, the obvious fact that typically the hitters with the highest Babbitt are the best hitters isn't true. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that's sort of, that. I mean, that's an important fact. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Barry Bonds had a career 285 Babbitt. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the past three years, minimum 1,000 plate appearances. Here are the top 10 Babbitts in baseball. Austin Jackson, number one. Joey Votto, number two. Wilson Betamit, number three. David Fries, number four. Dexter Fowler, number five. Carlos Gonzalez, number six. Emilio Bonifacio, number seven. Chris Johnson, number eight. Michael Bourne, number nine. John Jay, number 10. Um, so, uh, it's absolutely not the case that the best hitters tend to have the best BABIPs. Um, and, uh, that doesn't really matter because BABIP is a, it's a tendency stat. It's not a quality stat. You don't point to a person's BABIP and say he's good because of his, and, and his BABIP is evidence of there that. There would be, you, I guess, some correlation probably yeah, between being good be. at hitting and having a high BABIP, if only because having a high BABIP helps you be a good hitter and and if you have a a babbit below a certain point you probably will not be a successful hitter there's probably some correlation there's probably not as much correlation as almost any of the other numbers on this page um but um i mean yeah the 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 i think the point that people make when they talk about babbit or they should make i i guess the point that i would recommend people make is that um babbit is a is an it's an unreliable number that doesn't stabilize for a while. And so uh, your best bet is to uh, regress it heavily, regress it early, regress it often. And um, whether that is Mike Trout with his 383 BABIP this year um, or whether it's you know any player in any year, um, you should just regress it because it's a thing that misleads. It's a thing that is prone to mislead. Uh, and I, I mean, that's the only point about it, right? But, is that it, well, I, yeah, I guess. But ideally, you would probably want to regress towards some population of players resembling Mike Trout, right? I guess and, that you probably wouldn't want to just say he's it. just as likely to be league average as any other guy, given his his speed. Right, and that's somebody. That's why. That's why X Babbitt was created mm-hmm. to sort of take a look at all these factors in a player's offensive game and try to determine what a BABIP should be based on those things. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't think that... Um, I mean, I, I, BABIP is probably overused because it's uh, fairly simple, but it's also uh, used a lot because it's a good thing to look at. I mean, almost in almost every case, if you're trying to assess a player... Uh, who is doing something outside of his norms. Uh, BABIP is not the final answer, but in almost every case, it is the first thing you should look at, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Along with maybe walk rate and isolated power might be the first things you should look at. Right. Uh, I don't have a problem with it, as long as it's used right. Yeah, and I, I mean, it is misused sometimes, I think, um, but it is... It is important to mention in in many cases. Would you agree that Trout was a little lucky, or that it's likely that he was a little lucky? Um, I would agree that I don't know what he was. I I don't I don't I would require another couple of years before I would say one way or the other. I uh, if if I wouldn't bet against him doing it again, and I wouldn't bet against him not doing it again. It's just a thing where we don't have enough information right now. I wouldn't bet against him doing it again at some point in his career. I would probably bet against him doing it in any particular year. Just because I I don't know that anyone has has had a I mean, what's the highest career Babbitt? Maybe we can look it up while we're 
talking here. Like I, I think it might be Ty Cobb or someone who was, of course, playing in a, a totally different era, but his career BABIP was 378, at least for the years that we have that stat for him. Um, and I think that might be just about the highest I am I am looking as we speak. But Okay. Uh, so based on that, I wouldn't expect Mike Trout's career BABIP, or I wouldn't project his BABIP to be higher than the highest ever. David Freeze is the fifth highest. <laughs> okay, well, I guess that proves the, the highest BABIP, not always the best hitter point. Uh, okay, last question for today comes from James. I'm just going to say James because he signed his email. James from Fayetteville, uh, Arizona. Um, and Oh, no, Arkansas. I'm bad at, at state abbreviations. Uh, so James from Arkansas says, Now that you are both members of the BBWAA, you are no doubt immune to the knee-jerk reaction that causes an average fan to boo a player. I, too, a BP subscriber and a self-titled enlightened fan, thought I was above doing it. As a Rangers fan, when Josh Hamilton signed with the rival Angels, I was able to temper my friends with talk of, these are professionals who should seek out the most money for their services just like anyone else, and other arguments from a year of listening to the rational baseball talk of you and I and Kevin Goldstein, uh, whose yeah. whose company we probably don't deserve to be. Parks get a mention. Yeah. Uh, however, after hearing that Hamilton didn't give John Daniels a chance to match the offers they discussed, my ill will for Hamilton peaked. Of course, Hamilton didn't have to wait to see if Daniels would match the offer, which he almost certainly wouldn't have. And of course, I should relish the home runs instead of the two-strike whiffs he had as a Ranger. And of course, he can sign with whatever, whatever team he'd like, even if it was his previous team's rival. None of these are appropriate reasons to boo a player. And yet, when Hamilton comes to Arlington, I might do just that. Which brings me to my point. What do you think about fans booing players? Considering that rivalries are vital to the sport's prosperity, is booing a necessary side effect of a popular sport, or can a more tolerant sport be equally as prosperous? And the final, perhaps most interesting question, when was the last time you booed a player? Reach back to childhood if you must, and why? Uh, did you know that Ted Williams and Jason Worth have the same career, Babip? I did not. Um, I don't have a problem particularly with people booing. Um... I mean, I, I think that um, I I don't I don't know the last time I booed anybody, but the situation where a player leaves for free agency uh, and then comes back, it seems to me a perfectly legitimate time to boo. So long as you don't actually like you know you don't actually care. Like I don't actually think that if you actually hate Josh Hamilton and actually think that like you you wish him unhappiness, that's a problem. I would say, because um, there's no real good reason to wish anybody in this world unhappiness, but um, certainly for the reasons that a player leaves one city to go to another. Um, but booing is just part of the game. I mean, it's part of the game. By, by game, I don't mean baseball, but the game that players play with fans and fans play with players. It's part of the show. And um, it doesn't bother me when fans do it for that reason. It, I guess it bothers me it doesn't bother me when fans do it because a particular player is doing poorly on their team but i mean it also doesn't seem to have a reason and right. it doesn't seem to be helpful in any way so i guess in that sense i'm less uh kind of uh, 
you know, whatever about it. It's, that seems kind of counterproductive. Um, but you know, I've felt the urge to, I, I mean, when I used to root for Pedro Feliz, I felt great anger at him when he would swing at the first pitch and ground into a double play. I usually, I would be at home and I would be, you know, angry at him. And so I, I was not booing him, but I could certainly appreciate the urge to boo even in that situation. Um, but you know what? It's all, it's all make-believe. And so as long as you treat it like it's make-believe and have fun, that seems fine with me. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. I have never really had the impulse to boo. Uh, I might have booed as, as a kid at some point. I can't recall a, a particular player whom I booed, but it might have happened. Uh, I just, it always seems like sort of a ridiculous sound to make with your mouth, I, th- <laughs> I think. So I would feel sort of self-conscious booing, even in a stadium full of other people who are booing. And I'm not really inclined to cheer either. I guess making noise is not really part of my demeanor. Uh, so I tend to sit quietly at baseball games and will either seethe in anger or uh, or or appreciate someone's play, but I will do it quietly, uh, typically. And yeah, I never really understood the motivation for booing one's own player uh, as someone who grew up as a, a Yankee fan, I saw many, many times people booing their own players, and it never really made much sense to me. Uh, players know when they're playing poorly. They don't need you to, to boo them to, to inform them of that fact. And I always figured that it would make them, if anything, less likely to improve or to succeed going forward when they are uh, downcast about the booing. Maybe they are the type of person who isn't affected by the booing at all, but if they are affected, I think it's probably more likely that they would be dispirited by the booing than uh, kind of goaded into action by the booing. And I don't know if it really, I don't know if it affects an opposing team much. I, I would think by the time you're a professional baseball player, you, you, you almost don't hear the crowd's reaction, I would think. But maybe it's something that an opposing player would feed off of just as much as he would be demoralized by it. So I don't know. Uh, I guess it can be kind of a, a fun thing and part of being a fan and, and and identifying with the other people who root for the same team that you do. Um, and I I don't I don't uh, begrudge anyone booing. It's just not something I have any desire to do. Tony Gwynn had the same career BABIP as Matt Diaz and Homer Bush. (laughs) All right. Um, We're done. I guess you sent us so many good questions that maybe we will find time to answer some more of them later this week. You can continue to send them to us at podcast at baseballprospectus.com. We will be back with 125 on Thursday.